This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Andrew Schaefer and to Alex, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 426 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Kenneth Cully. He's a member of the Ultima Dragons fan club, creator of the website The Ultima Codex, and host of the Ultima podcast Spam 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 Humbug. And we'll be speaking with him today about Andrea Cantado's new book Through the Moongate, the story of Richard Garriott, Origin Systems Inc., and Ultima, Part 1, from Macalabeth to Ultima 6. And if you don't know, Ultima is a series of computer role-playing games, most of which were published between 1981 and 1999, which promote ethical behavior as one of the primary goals of the game. And if you want to learn more, you should check out my interview with Ultima creator Richard Garriott back in episode 105. And now here's our interview with Kenneth Cully. All right, so we're here with Kenneth Cully. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Okay, so you run an Ultima fan site, and you've recorded over 100 episodes of an Ultima podcast. So what is it about <laughs> Ultima that makes you want to devote so much time to it? Um, so you got to understand, I think everybody has like their first game, and it's Hopefully, you know, that first game is one that sticks with you. So, like, for me, um, growing up, what, Ultima 6 would have come out when I was you know, 10 or 11. And I remember, like, we didn't have a home computer. I didn't have a home computer. I only got to play computer games of any kind when I went to my grandfather's house. Um, he was a PhD electrical engineer, was heavily into programming, and he loves, still loves playing computer games to this day, actually. so. We'd go over to his place and, uh, like, even as younger kids, he had, like, some Winnie the Pooh games and um, uh, Mixed Up Mother Goose, Sierra title, sort of a kids-focused Sierra adventure game from way back when. Um, but Ultima 6 was, like, a revelation, you know, because it was this massive world that I could just, like, explore. And I had my little character and he could walk around and he kicked his legs and he moved his arms and there was stuff I could pick up and move around. And it was just, it was fascinating for, you know, 10 and 11-year-old me. And um, that game has still stuck with me. I still play it at least once a year. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. So as I was sort of thinking about this topic uh, today, I was trying to come up with why is... Because I, I guess, do you agree? I think Ultima 6 and 7 are my favorite games of all time. Are you in the same uh, neighborhood there? I'll give you Ultima 6, but I'm going to put Ultima 9 ahead of Ultima 7. Interesting. That's a bold choice. But but the Ultima series, in any event, is, yes. you say is your favorite series of all time? I think overall, yeah. Yeah, and so I was trying to think what makes it, to me, so much better than all other CRPGs. And I love a lot of CRPGs, but Ultima is definitely just head and shoulders above all of them. And I'm sure a lot of that is just nostalgia, but I was trying to come up with what do I think makes it so much better. And so I have four things. And so the three things I'm going to start with, are, I think, are pretty straightforward, is I like the fact that the, the characters have this real sense of reality to them, which I understand is because they were based on real people, many of them, many of Richard Garriott's friends from um, Society for Creative Anachronism and, and all this stuff. 
Yeah. Um, by the time I got to Ultima Six, uh, you know, there were I, I played a little bit of Ultima Four, but Ultima Six was really the first one that I really got into. And so by that point, there were five games of history that gave this world a real sense of oh, there's all these things that have happened before. Um, and then you sort of mentioned the fact that the world is just full of things that you can interact with and that don't have any real game purpose. So it's like coils of rope and cups and buckets and sextants, I guess, has a game purpose. But all these things that in most games, you know, there, will, there would only be swords and armor and potions and things like that. Um, yeah. So let's start with that. Do you, those are, do you agree with me about those three? Or, or sort of, when people think, why is Ultima so great? Those are the kinds of things that they would be thinking of. Um, I think that's a really spot on assessment. Like, and I mean, like, we have to allow for the fact that, you know, the Ultima series did evolve over time. So like a lot of the interactivity, for example, right? The ability to, to pick up a cup off the table. You know, you don't need this cup to pass the game. It is completely useless to you in terms of, you know, passing the game. Um, why are you able to pick it up? Well, because it's a cup on the table. And of course you should be able to pick up a cup on the table. That was the design philosophy, but that only came along starting with about Ultima 5 and then into Ultima 6. Um, because of course the engine tech didn't really support that kind of interactivity beforehand. But I don't disagree with your list. The only thing I would maybe add to it is that in addition to all of that, the idea behind the Ultima games was that you were in the game. You know, you were supposed to imprint yourself onto your character in the game. And sort of, you know, not even like in the sense of like, you know, your, um, not even the sense of like creating a character in Dragon Age, you know, where you're creating this nameless warden character and tailoring them to look a certain way and, of course, getting to choose all their dialogue options. Not even like that. You know, you were... The, the the whole premise of the Ultima games was that literally it was like you sitting on your couch one day, you personally wandered through a moon gate in your backyard and ended up in Britannia. And I think that was really sort of the, you know, you weren't Commander Shepard, you weren't the Warden, you were just you. And you were in Britannia and exploring it. And I think that was, that's a sense that we don't get in too many other games, at least not that I've encountered. There's right. always some context to what your character is in the game, whereas in Ultima, there was no context like that. It was you. Right. So so now we're getting into the secret fourth thing on my list. Um, and so it's, yeah, that's what you say is exactly right. That's not quite how I was thinking of it. I mean, I feel like when people talk about what makes Ultima special, the fourth thing that they would usually say is that you make ethical decisions. And I think that that's true, but I feel like there are a lot of games now where you make ethical decisions, like you mentioned, like you know, Dragon Age or whatever. I feel like there are lots of games where basically you can choose to be the good guy and you choose to be the bad guy. And if you make enough good choices, you end up on one path, you know, sort of one story path. And if you choose enough bad options, you end up on the bad story path. And so a lot of games, I feel like have taken that and run with it. But the thing mm -hmm. I think that makes Ultima special that I never really thought about until I was getting ready for this, um, for this interview is I feel like it's a, uh, it functions like a religious allegory, like um, Pilgrim's Progress or something, where it's not just a world that's different from ours that doesn't exist, but Britannia is almost like um, an exploration of your own soul, that like everything in it is, you know, is sort of weighted with symbolic or, you know, spiritual significance. And it has this like, the sense of the numinous that all other CRPGs just don't have for me. You know, you're casting fireballs, but you might as well be shooting a machine gun for all the magic that you feel right whereas britannia feels magical to me um i think because of that 
I've often said that because, like, I honestly, I mean, I grew up. I read Tolkien at a fairly young age. I think I finished off The Hobbit before I finished Grade Six. Uh, no, actually, by the end of Grade Six, I was well into Lord of the Rings. Never mind. Uh, so I finished off. You know, I, I was heavily immersed in Tolkien, and um, but I never actually had. My parents never even. Had, I don't think I had a copy of anything by C.S. Lewis. Uh, until I bought it for myself as an adult. So I never had Narnia. I had Britannia. And that is a comparison, though, that I think, now that I've actually read the Chronicles of Narnia, has really only been strengthened over time. Don't get me wrong. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I love the tale that Lewis crafts in those books. But Britannia was my Narnia. You know, it was that world at the back of the wardrobe, that magical place that... um I could access by this very particular means and just exist in for, for a while. So yeah, I like how you put that, right? Cause there is a bit of a spiritual significance to it too. You know, there is, there are games that have certainly taken the whole moral decision making mechanic, gameplay mechanic and gone much further with it. You know, in Ultima, you really, you can make bad choices, but depending on which Ultima you're playing, um, that either makes it more difficult to pass the game or makes it impossible to pass the game, right? Like, you can't be a jerk all the way through Ultima 4 and expect to pass. Um, if you decide to be reckless and aggressive all the way through Ultima 6, you may inadvertently wind up killing some of the characters that are necessary to pass the game. Now, the game will allow you to do that, but, you know, it's not really... It isn't really designed in a way that allows you to actually be the evil character all the way through. At some point, you do actually have to, if you want to get to that end game, you do have to, you know, make what the game has set up as the good choices. Um, but the virtues are there, and, you know, they, they do pop up throughout the narratives of the different games as things to uh, consider. But yeah, just as a whole, it's just, Britannia was my Narnia. It was that magical land. Well, yeah, and I certainly agree that just in terms of mechanics, obviously, the older Ultima games are, are much more primitive than stuff that exists now. But I'm talking about in terms of the the feel, you know, the way it makes you feel to play it, which for sure. isn't, isn't dependent on, on the sophistication of the mechanics necessarily. And, no, for sure. It was just a place to inhabit and to be, you know? Yeah. And I really like what you said about Tolkien versus Lewis, because I think that's exactly it, is that, you know... Um, uh, Ultimate is like Narnia, and everything else is like um, Middle Earth, in the sense. You know, uh, Tolkien always said he had a cordial dislike of allegory, and yes, you can feel you know however you want. You know, in in fiction, I think I, I I'm not so fond of allegory, but for for whatever reason, in a game setting, it just feels so different. I guess I guess just the the fact that you yourself are on a spiritual quest or a a quest for enlightenment, just to me is is very powerful in a interactive medium. Definitely. And it's just, it's kind of neat to see how, like, it, because, and I mean, like, I, it's weird to talk about this because, of course, you know, like, one of the, the ideas behind the virtues in Ultima was that it was, you know, meant to be kind of like a religion for the land, but a religion without God. It was, you know, kind of meant to have that secularism built in. But, it kind of had a bit of an opposite effect in terms of how I approached it and interpreted it, because I do consider myself a, a person of faith. You know, i Catholic, I go to church, all of that stuff. And Ultima was one of the few games before really Dragon Age that actually had sacred places in it, right? They weren't churches, they were the shrines. 
but that was a novel thing, right? I could play Heroes Quest, Quest for Glory, and I could pick up and run with just about any other series, and they had everything else that I would expect to find in a village or a town or whatever, but there were not any of those sacred spaces, but Ultima had them, and it was nice to see that component of a society present in its own way in Britannia, right? And in a very Britannian way at that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as I agree with you, I mean, yeah, I played all those games, you know, Heroes Quest and, and so on. And I wanted to ask you about the the Ultimate Dragons fan club, which I'm really interested in. And I was just, I don't know if there were ever fan clubs for Wizardry or Bard's Tale or Might and Magic or or any similar games around the same time. I never heard of any. And um, I guess so I guess that's that's my question. Do you know of any like anything sim- sim- is like the Ultimate Dragons one of a kind basically in this CRPG space? I think in terms of the breadth of the community, the size of it, and also its longevity, yes. Um, you know, were there message boards that were you know devoted to wizardry and quest for glory and all the rest? Well, sure, I downloaded walkthroughs off of some of those way back in the day. Um, so you know, were there fan communities surrounding these games? Yes, and do some of those continue to exist to this day? Yes, they do in some form or other. You can find Facebook groups and the like devoted to them. But I think the dragons were still rather unique because you know they were. They were founded, you know, at a t- they were founded before social media was, well, I don't even, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg was probably still in the single digit ages when the dragons were found. Like this was before social media was a gleam in anybody's eye. Um, but they evolved very rapidly into this huge community. And I think Origin really did a lot to help foster that because, of course, people from Origin would not infrequently engage with the dragons. Um, and, and, you know, try and help them grow as a community. And then on top of that, you know, the dragons kind of just became this online self-governing thing because it wasn't just about the games. It was never just about the games. It was kind of, it was about much like Ultima, you know, it wasn't, it was about the people. It was about you, the player. It was about you, the person. Um, and the dragons kind of really formed around that. Yes, we were all Ultima fans, but we were all also people and coming together as people. And that's kind of what the dragons continue to be today. And I think that's probably what gave it the staying power because, you know, it's been 20, almost 21 years since a numbered entry in the Ultima series. The last single player Ultima was published nearly 21 years ago. Um, why are we still a club? Yeah. Well, I mean, do you, did you find the people, do you think the people are more compassionate or, uh, you know, honest or, you know, any of the virtues, um, to pe- people who played the, particularly people who grew up playing the ultimate games? Is it a sort of self-selecting group or, or was there some sort of influence from the games that makes them more, uh, cohesive? A bit of both, maybe. Um, I think that it's, I think it's one of those things where, you know, if nothing else, you know, if things are getting a little bit testy, if people are starting to get a little bit nasty to each other, it's nice to be able to point back to the games and, you know, urge compassion and urge honesty and all of the rest of that. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, the understanding that we try still 
to maintain. And, you know, this is maybe even more important than ever in the current somewhat charged climate that we exist in now politically. Um, time and time again, the, the thing that I find I emphasize with, uh, with the dragons and, you know, talking about it with other people is that we're just, we're there as people and we're there, you know, essentially to kind of try and leave our differences at the door as much as possible. That's not to say that we don't have arguments, but it is to say that, you know, while we're having arguments, yeah, then we can look at some of the principles that the Ultima games tried to espouse. And we can say, you know, like, Hey, how is like, you know, justice is of course a big one these days in the, uh, in the current, uh, you know, a lot of discussions around like, um, Black Lives Matter, right? A lot of those are caught up with the idea of justice, right? A lot of the, uh, a lot of the protests and, and things that we see going on right now are caught up around the idea of justice. Um, and, and compassion is another, I think, big one that I kind of keep emphasizing as well, too, is because, you know, like, it's just, it's really about people treating people like people and not like, objects or or things that we can uh cast aside or or degrade or or whatever right it's just people yeah well i was going to get into this later but i guess i'll just bring it up now since you mentioned it um one of the things i was talking about on a recent episode is that so so for people who haven't played the games in, in ultima to create your character in in many of the games you're given a series of um, moral dilemmas and you have to say which virtue you would prefer so say honesty versus justice and yeah. it sort of occurs to me that there's this, um, you know, there's this big schism on the left right now between sort of liberals who I would say value things like free speech more than anything else and progressives who I would say value things like uh, equality between different groups of people more than anything. And it sort of occurred to me that those may be that may be the difference between people who, when presented with that question from the gypsy, the liberals would choose honesty and the progressives would choose justice. And I thought that was sort of a, an enlightening way to look at it because it makes you see that it's not just like, oh, like we're good and they're bad, but it makes you see like, oh, like people have different priorities and I might have chosen, you know, honesty and justice are both good and I might have chosen one or the other depending on different factors. But I don't know. So I just thought I would run that by you and see, do you, do, does that, uh, have you ever heard yeah. anyone talk about that or? Well, and I mean, you're exactly right that that's how the the virtues are are set up in in the Ultima games. And now, to be completely fair, um, you know, I've discussed and and others actually. So, um, one of our more well known dragons or dragonesses actually um, goes by a couple of different names. We call her Cranberry. She also goes by Galara. Um, and now and again, about once a year, she will on Twitter run these polls where she will basically run through all the virtue questions um, and, you know, invite the online Ultima Dragons community to answer them. And then she'll aggregate all the responses and she'll kind of come up with the, you know, well, okay, so collectively you have chosen this, right? And compassion usually wins out. But um, it's it's interesting because Every time she does that, there's a couple of other dragons who will usually chime in and they'll kind of, they'll pick apart the virtue questions a little bit. Um, so, you know, like, uh, one of the ones that always comes up is, um, I'm trying to remember which one this gets contrasted against, but basically it's like, you know, uh, you are, 
you know, you're an officer in, in the guard of some wealthy lord and he has prisoners and every night he tortures them. And, you know, so do you honor your master by keeping his crimes silent or do you honestly inform uh, the king as to what is being done? Something like that. I'm paraphrasing yeah, a little yeah, bit, no, but that's, that's essentially right, yeah. the tension it's setting up. And of course, myself and others have pointed out that that way of phrasing it actually depends on playing on the, it's a play on words, right? Because, you know, it's not honorable in any sense of honor as a virtue to cover up torture. But to honor your word, like you see where it's playing on the meaning of that the double meeting of yeah, honor, yeah, no, no, right? Totally, yeah, yeah. To, to keep your word versus to, you know, do the honorable thing. The honorable thing is to report the torture. Um, so leaving that aside, because like I do have, and I've devoted a lot of like little side episodes of spam, spam, spam humbug to discussing some of these issues. I do think that you are on to something there talking about, you know, the distinction between liberals and progressives. It's important to value, uh, free speech. It's important to value compassion and justice. Um, how do you resolve that tension? And yeah, people will break in different ways um, depending on a variety of circumstances that come from their own experiences. And Ultima does capture that. And that is definitely part of the community, the Ultima fandom. And I think maybe it's why we can have some of these more charged disagreements without devolving into complete nastiness with each other i also you know i was telling you that i just read um this book through the moon gate which is sort of a it's a it's just out in a print edition it's a history of uh, richard garriott and, and ultima and, yep. and origin systems and one of the things that kind of jumps out at me you know i never played ultima 5 really but i'm, I'm sort of familiar with this story but just reading about how um lord blackthorne he tries to enforce the virtues with very draconian means so it'll be yep. things like um, you have to give half your earnings in charity or you will have nothing. And it almost seemed to me, you know, from the perspective of 2020, that this is sort of a prefiguring cancel culture, right? This idea that you can have some good aim in mind, but if you um, enforce vastly disproportionate punishments on people in pursuit of those goals, that's not a good thing at all. No, not at all. But I, I suppose it's worth pointing out that vanishingly few people actually do evil for the sake of doing evil. Just about everybody who commits any kind of evil or, you know, like morally or ethically troublesome action does so because they do perceive some good in it. They may have a warped sense of what that is, but most such actions are still committed in pursuit of some perceived good. Um. And, you know, like that is definitely like at the heart of Ultima 5 and sort of Blackthorn's twisted interpretation of the virtues that he does try and um, impose upon the land of Britannia by, uh, you know, by law and by force of arms. Um, I mean, there's also, you know, commentary on, you know, the whole, uh, it, it, this is, you know, Richard Garriott and the Austin culture. Uh, so there's a lot of commentary in there, too, on, you know, separation of church and state and just the whole legislation and morality in general. Um, there's a lot of issues that are definitely um, caught up in what Ultima 5 is, you know, commenting on there. But, yeah, like, we... Blackthorn 
probably was in the back of his mind trying to serve some good end by doing what he did. He just went about it in a really, really horrible way. Um, well, well, right. That's why I, I think the, the key issue there is the the idea of disproportionate punishment, right? Because I totally agree with you that pretty much everyone thinks that they have they're, they have a good goal in mind and that they're justified. But I think that if Blackthorne were being intellectually honest, he would have to say that he was employing disproportionate punishment on people. And I think that's where he could maybe, you know, have a more clear-sighted view that he was that he had gone gone astray. Indeed, and I mean, perhaps that's you know that's maybe why we talk about you know pride being the the deadliest of uh, the deadliest of evils, um, and that's you know true in both you know sort of <laughs> modern philosophy as much as it is in Ultima's philosophy, right? Like pride is pride is the only anti-virtue that really ever gets a city destroyed. <laughs> And there's a reason for that, because pride, as an anti-virtue, does blind you in exactly that way, doesn't it? It it sort of makes you unable to even perceive how your views or the approach you're taking or the um, the ends that you're achieving could possibly be an error. Right. You mentioned Austin. It's funny, you know, I, I recently moved to Austin and I haven't had much of a chance to explore because of the whole COVID-19 thing. Mm. But once that's hopefully over, um, I was wondering if I could make a little pilgrimage to any, um, you know, landmarks around the city that would be of um, significance to uh, to origin. Um, and so I thought I'd ask you about that. Do you know, uh, is there any place around Austin I should check out that would have uh, be connected to Ultima, Richard Garriott, or anything? <laughs> well, there is two. Uh, there's two that I would, you know, maybe recommend. One is obviously the site of Britannia Manor, which I don't think exists anymore. Uh, I believe it was torn down. But Richard Garriott did obviously have his house, which was... Um, it's kind of near... Like, I, there's kind of a park sort of in the... Well, th- actually, I guess there's three. There's the site of Britannia Manor, and, I mean, I can look up the address. I don't have it fresh in my head. Um, but I believe that that was purchased and torn down some years ago, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, th- that address would have been one. Castleton would be the next. And that is, like, in a little stretch of park along the river that snakes its way through Austin. Um, is that and that I- was... I saw a video where it was like almost like a mini Ren fair with like a little pirate Yes, ship it is it. exactly that. It is exactly <laughs> a mini Ren fair. Um, so that would be the second one. And then if you want to, the office building that Origin was ultimately headquartered out of is still there. It still exists. And again, I'd have to get you the address. I don't have it off the top of my head. And obviously there's other companies that have moved in there now. But, you know, that's kind of the third place that other people I know who've gone to Austin uh, will tend to make a bit of a pilgrimage too, which is, uh, yeah, just this office park. Uh, at the time, it was kind of closer to the outskirts of Austin, but I imagine the city has enveloped <laughs> yeah. it by now. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I definitely, definitely get me those addresses. Uh, you know, after uh, after the call. I mean, um, another thing in in through the Moongate, um, they talk about Waterloo Park, Shoal Creek Park, and Will Barger Creek as all places that sort of hosted um sca meetings where richard garriott met you know i i, uh, I forget their names but the the people who were like yolo and sure Dupre yeah. And, yeah greg dykes dupre uh david watson yolo yep 
yeah. So so I'll, I'm definitely going to check those out. And also, it actually has um, in this book it has the address of Richard Garriott's parents in Houston, uh, where they he and his brother kind of started the company. So uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Houston's a bit of a hop from Austin. Yeah, you're gonna be well, driving for a little yeah, while. Yeah. No, but I was supposed to, I was supposed to go to Houston, um, you know, before the whole COVID thing. So I may again, but yeah, I, w- I wouldn't make a probably a special trip just to go there. But if I was in Houston, I might I might swing by, check it out, check out where it all started. Yeah, for sure. Um. So yeah. So um. But there's this book uh, that I said through the Moongate that's new, and in the back of it, um, the author Andrea Cantado he he thanks you among the people who helped out with the crowdfunding campaign. I was just curious, yeah. what was your involvement with that? Um, a little tiny bit of advice here and there. And then I also wound up, um, I was actually the voiceover for the Kickstarter video for the first Through the Moongate. So there's a second part of the book that's going to be coming out. Well, production on it got delayed because there's kind of a pandemic, like you've mentioned a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, so his ability to work on the book was somewhat curtailed. Actually, I think he and some of his family may have even uh, caught the virus. They've all recovered, thankfully. But um, so I did the voiceover for the Kickstarter campaign for part one, and then Kyle F. Dragon uh, did the voiceover for the Kickstarter campaign for part two. Um, but I still occasionally chat with uh, with uh, the good Mr. Contado. There's kind of a little Facebook group that we uh, message each other through um, just because, you know, like there's – there's questions that come up and there's other little bits of facts and information that he's still digging up and likes to share. Um, and then of course, you know, like Italian is his first language. So whenever he wants to do like a Kickstarter update or, uh, whenever he's, you know, working on a particular bit of phrasing for the English translation of the book, he'll send that out. And, you know, myself or uh, rustic dragon, um, Edward Vitralis is his main, like he's the main English editor. Um, but the rest of us on the channel will chime in as well with our thoughts uh, about, you know, we'll just give our input as he needs. You know, I was looking at your your website, The Ultimate Codex, last night, and I've looked at it a lot, but I never really appreciated just how much stuff there is on there in terms of just all these, like, <laughs> old magazine articles and, um, no, you know, handwritten letters. And it just goes on and on. You know, I'm scrolling and it keeps loading more and more things. And so I was wondering, I mean, what was there stuff in through the Moongate that was new to you even having maintained all this ultimate related stuff for, for so many years? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. There was, um, it's, well, actually, you know what, in both versions of the book, I mean, and you know, it's almost impossible to, to even like go through and like pick out individual bits, right? Because like I've been fortunate with the codex to be able to relay content as it's brought to my attention, right? And people like, I mean, some of the biggest uh, contributors to that, to the archives that I've been able to amass have been um, like Joe Garrity, who he actually started out as a Wing Commander fan, but he eventually wound up befriending just about everybody who ever worked at Origin. <laughs> and so he has a basement full, and I've been there, he has a basement full of just stuff from Origin. Like actually when Origin closed down, whatever didn't get burned in the big bonfire and whatever people didn't take home for their own keepsakes and mementos got put in a huge box and that box got loaded on a FedEx truck and it showed up at Joe's house uh, <laughs> for him to sort and keep. And even today, you know, people who used to work at Origin, if they find some stuff um, that, you know, they don't need anymore, but they think is interesting, 
and they don't just want to destroy it, they'll call Joe up and they'll send it to him. So yeah, well, yeah, he you know he emailed me years ago, and yeah, I, I think his house was described as the Origin Museum. I don't know if it's is it open. That's to the what public he calls it. Can, can people? Nah. I don't know if people can uh, just come by and look at stuff or not. But. Uh, it's kind of an invitation only thing. I was fortunate yeah. enough to uh, to have a chance to see it when I was at uh, Bioware Mythic, then Mythic Entertainment, um, when they were building Ultima Forever, because um, he's not too far from where they were situated at the time, but. Yeah, no, it's uh, it would be by invitation only, definitely. Um, but then the other person that I wanted to shout out in particular was Bill Randolph, who was a developer on. Well, he actually started at Westwood, and he built uh, like a lot of the networking systems for Command and Conquer. But he came over and helped out with Ultima Nine. Um, but he has also contributed a fair number of the notes and articles, like just the all of that content that you mentioned that ended up on the codex. A lot of that has also kind of come from him or from him through Joe, but either way. Yeah. Well, let me mention a couple of things that were, cause I've read a bunch of books about um, Ultima. So, um, but there was a lot of stuff in through the moon gate that was new to me. And oh, one of the things, just, yeah. One of the things is um, I don't know that I'd ever actually even heard of this person, Roe Adams before, but he comes across as a pretty major figure in, in this new book. Um, and this line jumped out at me. Um, the author says, perhaps at the suggestion of Adams, who was certainly the most literate of the two, the ethical model of the new game ended up being directly influenced by the Wizard of Oz using the three principles of truth, love, and courage. Um, what's your take on that? Like how, how much of a role did, did Roe Adams play in the Day of Virtues? Uh, well, I mean, in terms of him being the one to sort of suggest the model of, you know, truth, love, and courage as kind of that foundation. Um, that's pretty huge, right? Because the, like the association with the, the Wizard of Oz was well enough known. Um, and I'm pretty sure that if I really went and like dug around in, well, probably the Wayback Machine now, I could probably find with enough time some other mention of where Roe Adams may have been the one to suggest that. But in terms of, you know, the, the detail that, uh, Andrea Cantado was able to, to get with, you know, just how he was able to, uh, to tease that out and, and sort of, you know, flesh that story out a little bit. Being the person to suggest basing the eight virtues off of these three principles, truth, love, and courage, like that's, I mean, that's foundational because Richard Garriott took that inspiration and, you know, I mean, well, look where he ran with it, right? Like we, he came up with the eight virtues and there are people even today who, you know, when the discussion turns more philosophical on the Ultima Dragons uh, Facebook group or wherever else, will readily admit that they don't really have any other personal credo in life, any other governing philosophy apart from the eight virtues. So I'd say it, the significance of that is somewhere between huge and really, really huge. Yeah, well, I I think you listened to my interview with Richard Garriott where I talked about this, but yeah, I'm pretty much in that category. Um, that that the, they were huge for me. I mean, um, for me, it's even less the the eight virtues than the three principles. I think that the eight virtues is kind of like too much to hold in my head at one time when making a ethical decision. But truth, love, and courage, I feel like, gives a really good sort of um moral compass. Um, and then I have a lot, I mean, I studied moral philosophy in college, so I have a lot of other ideas. Like the other, the ones that made the biggest impression on me were sort of, um, John Stuart Mill's ideas about why you should basically let people express their opinions and feel comfortable to do so rather than trying to silence them 
and um, Immanuel Kant's ideas about um, that you should not do anything that you wouldn't want everybody doing, basically. But sort of, right. you know, all those things together, I would say, is kind of like the cornerstone of my, you know, political philosophy or moral philosophy as, as far as it goes. Yeah. So, and I mean, you know, mine, uh, not that I disagree with any of those. Mine, obviously, I could point to maybe different origin or different, you know, sources that I would, you know, uh, draw upon. Um, but yeah, like fundamentally, and all of those are, I think, you know, really reflected kind of like you point out and in the truth and love and courage as principles. And I think in some ways I, if, if I want to frame how the eight virtues influence me in terms of my moral philosophy, I'll probably point to the principles more as well, um, because I, and I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, I usually wind up struggling with the idea that the virtues are in conflict. Um, you know, I kind of come at it more from the Aristotelian view that the virtues complement each other, right? This is this idea of the unity of virtues, you know, uh, it's hard to be prudent, but intemperate, for example. <laughs> and so I kind of like that, you know, truth and, and love and courage seem sort of more, and especially even as they're presented in Ultima, that seem, they seem to be more harmonious with each other, especially because, of course, they work together to give the eight virtues. And then, of course, there's these tensions, sometimes artificial tensions, that are drawn up between the eight virtues in the gypsy questions or whatever else. Um, that said, I mentioned Bioware Mythic, and I, I really got to shout this out because it's one of the only times I was reminded of it the other day because there was some quiz on Facebook that was asking about the last time a game, a video game, kind of knocked me back on my feet with a moral quandary. And that was never Mass Effect. That was never Dragon Age. That was Ultima Forever. Uh, Bioware Mythic, Mythic Entertainment, Paul Barnett and his team. It's unfortunate that Ultima Forever had the short life that it did, and then mobile only. Um, I really would have loved to have seen that come to PC. But they had a really good writing team, and they had a couple of really good, you know, philosophy people on the writing team. So some of the little moral quandaries that you would encounter as you moved through the land of Britannia in that game, there were a couple of them that I remember, I don't remember the exact question, but I remember having to put my phone down and just be like, mm -hmm. okay, hang on, I got to think about this. <laughs> well, th this may be like too much of a deep cut for some people, but in um, Ultima 7 Part 2, there was this whole other philosophy, the Ophidian philosophy, where it was all about, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but it was basically like order and chaos and balance. And yep. so there were a bunch of sort of virtues, and then it's like, you know, too much is cowardice, but then too much is foolhardiness and you want to, and whatever it is in the middle is, is the good one. And I mean, if I were to approach it now, I, I, I probably would go for a system more like that because like you're saying that you don't want, you know, you have this, this philosophical issue with the idea of the virtues being in conflict with each other. But I feel like a, um, you know, like a moral system, it has to not just make sense, but it has to have a personal significance or like emotional significance for you that you know the eight virtues do for me because i started playing those games when i was 12 or whatever and yep. um ultima 7 part 2 i played when i was i don't know 
17 or 18 or something. It's just not the same. Like, you know, like things that you encounter when you're 12 just will always have more emotional significance for you. Uh, I shouldn't say always, but, you know, 10, almost always tend to than, than things you encounter when you're 18 or whatever. Yeah, well, I think my under, if if I understand it correctly, and it's been a few years since I read the research, but yeah, like the the music that will tend to you know define your musical tastes uh, is probably the stuff that you were exposed at in kind of that twelve to sixteen corridor, I think. But um, but yeah, I think you're. Although it's funny, you. Uh, I mean, the eight virtues will resonate with me certainly more than the Ophidian virtues from Serpentile will. Um, just because, you know, that's definitely, we, we only get the Ophidian virtues in the one game. Um, whereas, you know, the eight virtues kind of animate all of the Ultima series from four onwards. But I will confess that I like how the Ophidian virtues are constructed a little bit better because they're a little bit closer to that Aristotelian notion of virtue, which is that the virtue exists as a golden mean between two equal but opposite vices. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. And it, it's always if if I have an issue with the eight virtues, it's kind of like it's that, and like I'll usually point to valor with this one, right? Because it's like, okay, well, obviously, yes, cowardice is opposed to valor. If we're going to make a virtue of valor, then cowardice would be one vice that is definitely opposed to it. But so is what we could maybe call wantonness or recklessness, right? the uh the the complete abandonment of any kind of prudence in favor of just you know sort of a uh damn the torpedoes full speed ahead kind of reckless charge into needless danger yeah no yeah, yeah exactly yeah so that's why i'm yeah I, I agree with you that you know uh if i were coming to it fresh i, I would probably go go the ophidian route um, but you mentioned, um, Ultima Forever. And just to explain that for people who might not know. So basically, um, you know, the Ultima series meant, uh, Ultima series ended, as you said, with Ultima 9. And, um, and the, you know, origin kind of the company sort of ceased to exist. And Richard Garriott went off and did other things. And then, um, Electronic Arts, who owns the IP, tried to res has done a couple little things but this was their main attempt as far as i know to to bring it back was this thing called ultima forever which was i don't know what five years ago or something maybe maybe uh, a little longer closer to seven now it would yeah. have gone offline in 2013 actually around this time of year yeah so um and i didn't i never played it but my understanding is that i saw a lot of people complaining about loot boxes and things that kind of spoiled the experience um, well, this was kind of the pre loot box thing, but their, their, in, their initial, their at launch in game monetization system was, yeah, kind of terrible. Um, of course, this was also when companies were still kind of trying to figure out what was the best free to play monetization scheme. And so you saw a lot of examples of stuff that was just like, wow, like this is just a grotesque money grab. Like, come on. Um, EA were hardly the only offenders in that regard, but Ultima Forever at launch did not have good monetization at all. But they had, they had, you were like a consultant or something, or they were, you were advising them somehow on that, on the game? Well, yeah, like, I mean, and that was kind of, that was actually, that even predated the Ultima Codex, because before the Codex, I ran another website, which still exists, although obviously doesn't get updated anymore. Um, but it, uh, Paul Barnett, who was the creative director at Mythic, reached out to me via that website 
And then through me, we kind of put together a little consulting team of different, you know, members of the Ultima Dragons, um, mostly around the U.S. You know, they had they they wanted a, a team to come out and see the game and give feedback. And so it was kind of limited to Canada and the U.S. We couldn't get any international dragons, unfortunately. But still, there was a, a group of us that, you know, we came to Mythic. We saw the game. We gave some feedback. And then later on, again, they, you know, I helped them organize like an alpha test. And this was actually a PC client, which I still have installed. Um, not that I can play the game anymore because the servers are all offline. But I still have the PC client kicking around. Um, so then... We did the alpha test there. Well, actually, let, let me ask you, were, were, were okay. there particular things that you said to them, like, it has to have this to be a real ultimate game or, like, you know, things like that? I try and shy away from doing that because everybody kind of has there, – there are different things that everybody will, you know, say, well, this has to have this to be a real Ultima game, right? Like, I, I mean, I'd love to have a game where there's lots of interactivity in the world, right? Um, but Ultima 4 didn't have that. And to be fair, you know, they were kind of building a new engine and, and building a new framework. And their idea was to basically expand the engine they were building to eventually include these capabilities. Um, I think they did a very good job of trying to capture the core of what an Ultima was, which is to say that, you know, it was meant to be set in this magical place, like we talked about at the beginning, right? This magical place, this Britannia, and it was meant to be you, and it was meant to be infused with this concept, this philosophy of the virtues, and you were supposed to, you know, grow into the avatar of those virtues. And I think they actually did a better job than in any other Ultima of finding ways to have the general populace comment on the virtues and ask for help resolving quandaries in a virtuous way, which is, you know, that's where I get to saying that, like, that's one of the only games that's ever actually like, oh, crap, I got to think about this. Put the phone down and actually reason out, like, okay, well, what is the... Wow, okay. <laughs> well, well, right, let me say, I mean, this is what I'm talking about with the, the allegorical nature of Britannia, where you have eight virtues and you have eight cities, and the people in each city are kind of emphasize one of the virtues, and you go to that city, you know, you go to the city of humility to learn about humility. And um, and so it's not like, like a real world wouldn't be like that. So that's why I mean that it has this sort of like dreamlike, allegorical, magical quality where, like a, you know, where, where you are, like the whole world exists to to reflect your own spiritual quest. Yep. That in part, but then, you know, there's also other towns, right? There's other towns spread throughout Britannia. There's the eight, there's eight cities that, you know, classically in Britannia, there are eight cities that correspond to the eight virtues. But there's also other little cities and towns along the way. And it was really actually in those towns that it got more interesting, right? Because, yeah, like if you were exploring Britain, a lot of it had to do with compassion and you know okay well what is the compassionate course of action here but then you go a little bit south of that into say pause and the that's where the ethical quandaries that the ultima forever writers that's where they got really interesting because now it was kind of like well this town isn't really associated with any particular virtue so the people there are actually trying to wrestle out like okay well i have these different courses of action 
which virtue is upheld by which course of action and which one should I aim for, right? That's what made it more interesting. Mm-hmm. What are the prospects? So I saw Richard Garriott on Twitter within the last few weeks, I think. Somebody said, will you ever remake Ultima 6, Ultima 7? And he said something to the effect of, I'd love to, but EA won't let me. Um which seems incredibly frustrating uh, to me, yeah. but um, and I understand there's a lot of bad blood there or something. It just seems like it's been so long. Like, you know, they can't work out something to because I would I would just love to see a um, you know, Ultima Six made available again for you know for a more you know with with uh, new graphics and sound and stuff and for to make it more accessible to a, a new generation. I'd like to see that too, and I don't know if it will ever happen um because and and i think you hit on it exactly like and you have to understand like kind of the history of the last and let's bracket ultima online and leave it aside the last two ultima games apart from ultima online that have seen the light of day so this would be ultima 9 and ultima forever actually followed remarkably similar trajectories throughout their development, which is to say that depending on exactly where you are in their development timelines, they are either the next hot thing or on the verge of being canceled or maybe even actually canceled and someone is frantically trying to resurrect the project. Hmm. Uh, And... It's perhaps telling that in the wake of Ultima Forever, Mythic was similarly closed down, right? To Paul Barnett, I think, is working on World of Tanks now, you know? Completely different company. Um, there just there does seem to be something about Ultima that it does have a bit of a curse attached to it now within EA. And I think a lot of that comes down to, yeah, there's a bit of bad blood there, maybe a lot of bad blood there. I've actually heard that from a few people who've kind of been insiders at EA and who've made inquiries about maybe someday, one day, doing something around Ultima. Um, And, you know, that singular attempt to bring it back was just fraught with difficulty pretty much through its entire development life cycle. There's also a lot of love for Ultima among, you know, well, just among a lot of game developers in general. Um, because it's, especially in the RPG space, it is the great-grandfather. It is at the top of the family tree for so much of what we have in the RPG space now. Uh, you know, open world, moral quandaries, all of that stuff. Like, you can find, though, Ultima has its fingers on all of that. Um, like, like, what do you think today? Like, if... What what's the closest someone could come today to getting that Ultima Six experience? Oh, that is a tough one. You know, the, um, I mean, something like you know a, a Bethesda game these days certainly has the technological underpinning to to create a world that that's that is that well realized. But that's not the only thing that makes Ultima Six special, right? Ultima Six is special because it also has well, A, it has you, you know, you are still the person in the story, but B, the story that Ultima 6 tells around you is, and this is one of the reasons I love the game so darn much, it's such a beautiful upending of a narrative trope, right? You start the game off and you're convinced, convinced that these horrible redskin monsters are taking over and invading Britannia and it's your job to defeat every last one of them and liberate the continent. And if you take the entire game with that attitude, you will lose right? It 
pulls the rug out from under you and out from under that viewpoint after you tease it up so well and then it just yanks the floor out from underneath you. And uh, by the end of the game, you realize that, yeah, the monsters are invading the Fantasy Kingdom because they have a very legitimate grievance against the Fantasy Kingdom that needs to be made right. Yeah, well, one of my most vivid memories of playing Ultima 6, and it still like gives me chills thinking about it, but so, so the cover, the box cover of Ultima 6, it's this sort of glowing paladin kind of warrior with his foot on the corpse of a gargoyle, a you know, yep. red scaly demon-like monster. And so then you play through the whole game, and you eventually um, sort of are interacting with the gargoyles and their culture and their world. And there's a, just a description of their holy book. And it, and it describes the cover, which is like a gargoyle warrior with his foot on the corpse of a dead knight or something. You know, yep. It's the inversion of the box cover. And it just like still gives me chills, as I said, to remember that moment and, and think about, you know, those yep. two perspectives. Yeah. And so, I mean, like in terms of, you know, technology, like, I mean, Bethesda could easily create an interactive world like that. Um, not even Skyrim really rises to that level, but, you know, Bethesda could do it. I'm actually, I, I like to joke sometimes that I'm waiting for like Rockstar Games to, uh, release Grand, the, you know, the next Grand Theft Auto and there'll be this whole thing where you can like, um, rob a bakery, but if there's not enough money in the till, then you can actually like bake bread until there's <laughs> enough money. You know, I, I'm just waiting for, and then of course, you know, there'll be like this raft of articles of like, oh my gosh, you can actually bake bread in this game. And then I'll be just like, yeah, it's nice to see that feature again. Uh, because Ultima 7 had that, right? So, um, yeah, it, you know, there's, there's elements of like, you know, yeah, you want the world to feel lived in. Uh, you want, the world to feel like you can inhabit it. You want to have that sense of inhabiting the world. Um, and then, of course, you need to tie it all together with this story that really, um, you know, sort of puts that uh, that ethicality uh, front and center as well. And it's, you know, I don't, I don't know if I could point to any developer who I think can do all of that. I think there's different developers who could do different components of that. Um, but I don't know if there's anybody in the RPG space right now who could really do all of that together and pull it off. What is sort of the, um, status of, there, there are all these, um, fan efforts to kind of rebuild U6 or U7. Um, are any of those really like that you would say for, for someone who's new to Ultima are accessible enough, um, that they could give it a try? Uh, that's a, <laughs> so, I mean, the, the absolute best Ultima fan remake has to be the Ultima 5 remake, um, Lazarus. That was released as a mod for Dungeon Siege. Um, but I dare say that it does more with that engine than Dungeon Siege ever did. Um, and, you know, I mean, the creative director for that one is now the creative director for Star Wars Squadrons. So, you know, like he did well by his efforts for sure. Um, definitely, but equally, that one is very unforgiving, right? And, and there are some additional mods, mods for mods. How about that? Um, there's some additional mods that you can plug into Lazarus that make it a little bit easier, right? Like the, the food requirements, you know, you, every action costs a bit of food and you can starve to death in the game, right? Like there's a lot of the hardcore elements about it. Um, honestly, like, I mean, if I wanted to, if you ask me, like, which Ultima game someone should play today, I'd say start with 9 and step back in time. And if you want, I can explain why that is. 
Um, but in terms of which Ultima fan projects to dig into, I'd look at stuff like Nuvi or like Exalt. Um, Nuvi is a alternative engine for Ultima 6, and Exalt is the same for Ultima 7. So they basically require the original game data files, but they allow you to play the games on different operating systems. They allow you to play the game at different resolutions. I mean, it's still, you know, the tile graphics, although these days that retro look is kind of in again, so, you know, you might not notice. Um, <laughs> but those, I think, are probably better ways, because, like, especially Nuvi, right? Like, Coming back to Ultima 6, such a great game, but a lot of people struggle with its interface, especially nowadays because UI design has certainly gone leaps and bounds beyond the best that 1991 and 1992 could offer. And Nuvi really, that's what, that's its big thing that it changes about Ultima 6. Instead of this little narrow viewport that you see the game world through and then, you know, all of the interface around that, um, it allows you to, you know, you can play it so the entire screen is just full of the game world and inventory element or like inventory and character sheets and everything else just pop up as little overlays, right? Um, you know, makes yeah, well, it much more really, accommodating. Really striking when I go back and look at, you know, footage of Ultima 6 and how small, you know, you can see it's sort of three paces in any direction from, from your character. Exactly. Like, wow, I don't know how I ever put up with this. And this isn't how I remember it at all. But, uh, so Nuvi really, I mean, it basically just takes all of that and clears up, you know, just gets, it, it allows you to, I mean, you can play with the old interface too if you want, but it allows you to just get rid of that. And so you see the whole of the game world is filling your screen and then UI elements are only there when you need them to be there, right? If you need to edit inventory or see your character stats or whatever the case may be. Um, I'd say, you know, like if people wanted to get into that, in, into the fan remake scene, look at things like that. And Funnily enough, a lot of those are now going to get folded into Scum VM. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Nuvi ha- Nuvi's now been folded into Scum VM. Pentagram, which is for Ultima 8, has been this folded is, into Scum for, VM. For running the old um, LucasArts adventure games, if people. Yes, right? And it, yes. And I mean, now it's Scum VM, though, has kind of become the Swiss army knife of game engines, right? Because it has support for Sierra titles and LucasArts titles and just so many different old school games are supported by scum vm it's definitely gone beyond its original mandate uh, many many times over yeah um we're running a little short on time here do you want to just sort of to wrap things up do you want to talk about kind of what's going on with the codex and with spam 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 humbug is there um i don't know stuff that you've been excited about happening recently or upcoming or anything like that uh well you know what i think I mean, honestly, the big thing I got to do right now is get the codex onto uh, HTTPS, which is a little bit more challenging because that's a lot of like background database work. And I have to, you know, go through and make sure that I uh, don't have my mixed content and like just cleaning up all my links and things like that. That's going to be a huge chore that I'm hoping to finish by the end of the summer. We'll see. Um, in terms of like, you know, new development materials or anything like that, I don't really have anything in the pipeline right now. Spam, 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 humbug kind of just, it's, uh, the tagline that I came up for it was Games Culture Dragons, because it really is, um, we kind of, we talk about games most of the time, but we stray from topics so, <laughs> so readily. It's, I, I'm, I'm edified that you listen to it. That's, I'm really great to hear. Um, but, you know, fair warning for anybody who's thinking of checking it out. It is kind of niche, <laughs> kind of very niche. So, um, but I don't know. I, m- my big thing is just, I want to keep the codex running. I want to keep the podcast running. Um, 
and the biggest challenge for me is time. So, you know, uh, I, I don't want to set my goals too, too much higher than that for the time being. Um, because sometimes, some weeks, just getting time in front of the mic is challenge enough. Yeah, well, well, I, I, I agree. You know, the your podcast spam, 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 humbug is, um, you know, not necessarily for the uninitiated, but it was just, you know, growing up, um, you know, I just loved Ultima so much, and I didn't know anyone else. You know, I, I never got a chance to talk about it with anyone my whole life, basically. Like pretty much Richard Garriott was the first person I had a long conversation with uh, wow. about Ultima. So. Um, you know, just having, you know, just hearing people talk about it. I'm like, oh, wow, there are other people who, you know, were into these games than, you know, to hear them. It's it's sort of surreal almost because uh, I never really experienced. I actually, you know, I should have mentioned I um I did join the Ultimate Dragons. Uh, oh, nice. I was genetically altered dragon, you know, in oh, like cool. 1995 or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, then after college, I, I spent like 10 years pretty much 100% focused on writing and then another 10 years pretty much 100% focused on podcasting. So I fell out of video games quite a bit. But um, so that's kind of part of the reason I want to talk to you is I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, the path not take if I had gotten, you know, if I'd followed that stuff more and, you know, gone to meetups and all that kind of stuff, what, uh, what might have my experience has been. So it's just kind of, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of curious to hear. That's what well, I'm kind of curious to hear about that kind of stuff. You know, I never went to many of the meetups. I was going to go to the the big 25th anniversary bash, but then my daughter got appendicitis. You know, for me, I started playing these games at, uh, well, at a young age, 10, 11, and they kind of just stuck with me pretty much through elementary, junior high, high school, university, um, played them less and less kind of as you rolled into university. Engineering is kind of a pain in the butt to get through sometimes. <laughs> And, uh, and then of course, you know, like job, married, family, um, it definitely all chips away at the amount of time I have to, to game or to podcast or to, to anything. But, uh, and so I never went to the meetups or anything else. Have you ever met the other dragons in person? It's taken a very conscious effort on my part and I've only met a handful of them. So like, for example, and actually I I should really shout him out again. Um, Edward Vitralis, he used to go by the name Joseph Toshlog. He was one of the first dragons I ever met. And the reason that was, was because I was actually on a work project in Louisville, and he and his band were performing at an Irish pub in Indianapolis. Now, that's about a three-hour drive, which for me is nothing, because that's the distance between Edmonton and Calgary. I didn't think anything of it. I was in the area. I was there over the weekend. He was performing on a Saturday. So I'm just like, well, heck, I'll drive up. So I did. And I showed up, and I hung out with him, and then I had another chance to be in the area a year or so later, so I got to hang out with him again. And I travel for work a lot, so everywhere I go, I try and reach out to Ultima Dragons in that area and say, you know what, hey, I'll be in town, let's have a pint or something. Um, and I've met a few others along the way, Boolean Dragon, Houston Dragon, etc. But, uh, you know, that's just me taking advantage of my life circumstance and the fact that I occasionally have to travel too far-flung places to, you know, then reach out to people and say, hey, let's get together. That's cool, though, that you're able to make connections with people, you know, that pretty much every every city or whatever, there's probably one dragon somewhere. Yep. I do it with scout troops, too, because that's the other big thing that I'm passionate about. Um, all right, cool. So, yeah, I think we should start wrapping this up. Do you have any um, any final thoughts or any other projects or anything you want to mention? Uh no, I'm. Pre- I mean, definitely no more projects. Please, no more projects. I've got more than I can handle already. Um, I will say, for anybody who's never tried the Ultima games, who wants to step into the Ultima games, 
I'm going to put a plug in for Ultima 9. And the reason for this is, it's going to seem like, I mean, if you've been playing 3D RPGs especially, been playing modern RPGs for the last 15 years, it will seem the most familiar to you. But it also will introduce you to a lot of the trappings of the other Ultima games and what makes them great. You know, you will find in it an open world. You'll find in it the ability to manipulate random objects that have no bearing on the plot of the game. Um, you'll find in it, you know, bits and pieces of the stories of the other Ultima games. And then, you know, sort of ultimately all tied up in this neat little, uh, neat little package of a story that tries to kind of bring all of the disparate threads of the Ultima series to a close. Maybe it succeeds, maybe it fails. You'll kind of have to judge for yourself. But in terms of, you know, the accessibility factor, Ultima 9 will seem the most familiar to modern gamers. And so I would suggest that as the point of entry. And once you've had a chance to digest that a little bit, loop back. Try Ultima 6, try Ultima 7, or if you're really feeling hardcore, <laughs> go to Ultima 4 and play forward from there. Do you need anything? Do you need to do anything special to get Ultima 9 running on a modern system? Ultima 9 should run... Ultima 9, if it's patched to at least version 1.18, uh, which is like... So when you buy it off of GOG or the Origin Store, you will get it um, at the 1.18 patch level. And GOG, at least, Origin may, I don't know. GOG bundles it with Nglide, but you don't need Nglide to run it. Uh, so Nglide is kind of a wrapper that simulates the old Glide 3D technology. But 1.18, Ultima 9 1.18 does support DirectX. So it will run natively under Windows 10 without much issue. That said, I would recommend going to ultima9.ultimacodex.com and grabbing the 1.19F or 1.19G patches. Uh, which are fan-made patches that apply some additional corrections and fixes and, and little tweaks to the game. Yeah, no, that all sounds great. And like I said, these are the greatest games of all time. And Ken seconds that. So everyone, definitely go check them out. There you go. All right, so let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Kenneth Cully. He's the creator of Ultima Codex and host of the podcast Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug. So Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. and. Uh... Talk to you later. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Kenneth Cully for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.